It is February 14th, and it's Oregon's birthday. is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Each year, to celebrate Oregon's birthday, we work to come up with amazing stories from Oregon's past. Stories that really characterize the essence of Oregon. This year is no exception. Listen up, dear ass-kickers, to the tale of William Ladd. The early days of Portland, Oregon began with a rocky start. In the 1840s, a fellow by the name of Peter Burnett, who just happened to become the first governor of that crummy little state to Oregon South, had the following to say about his northern neighbors. He stated that Oregonians were all honest because there was nothing to steal. They were all sober because there was no liquor to drink. There were no misers because there was no money to hoard. And they were all industrious because it was work or starve. Gee, thanks, Peter. That really makes Oregon sound like a fucking good time. So, what on earth were the early Oregonians to do besides work their asses off? Who would save them? Well, my dear ass-kickers, in Portland at least, there arose a savior of sorts. In fact, as we shall see, he arose twice. Making his dramatic entrance today into our tale is the eventual fifth mayor of Portland, one William S. Ladd, he of the addition. 
Mr. Ladd came to Portland on the steamer Columbia in 1851, and Ladd was one smart chap. He saved Portland from its early sobriety. When Ladd came to Stumptown, he brought some quantity of wine and liquor with him, and he promptly set up a liquor store. Always a good way to build a strong political base up here in P-Town. Unsurprisingly, he was pretty successful in this booze-selling venture and built quite an empire in the early economy of the small town on the Willamette, eventually investing in agriculture, flouring mills, and the Oregon Iron, Oregon Telegraph, and Oregon Central Railroad companies. Gee, they just don't make corporate names like they used to, huh? What the fuck is an Epson, anyway? Elected to two terms in the mayor's office, Ladd proved that even peddlers of ardent spirits could aspire to be the connected one-percenters. Ladd led a prosperous, well-connected life. As he lived, he gained influence and mass. When he was finally laid to rest in the Riverview Cemetery, Ladd was said to have weighed some 300-plus pounds making it all that much more astounding when, four years after he died in 1893, four dudes dug up his grave and carried away his corpse. On an early Tuesday morning in May of 1897, the caretaker of the Riverview Cemetery made a very startling discovery. He was pruning some trees near the grave of William S. Ladd and noticed that quite a bit of soil had been hastily thrown about. The caretaker also spied many footprints evident in the newly turned dirt. Some prints were deeply sunk in the earth and it was obvious that several men were represented by these marks. As the caretaker carefully approached Ladd's grave, he saw that the final resting place had been rifled. The metallic casket had been cut open on three sides and the cover removed. Ladd's body was absent, and a board on an incline, along with a metal hook discarded in the grave, helped the caretaker to quickly determine the fate of the corpse. A trail of labored prints led to the river, and several low-hanging tree limbs had been cut from the obvious path. One of Ladd's shoes remained near the gaping hole, but that was about it. News quickly spread around town about the grave robbery and speculation ran rampant that the ghouls desired to ransom Mr. Ladd's carcass. Needless to say, the Portland public was aghast at this gruesome nocturnal expedition. Public indignation has seldom been aroused to so high a pitch as it was by the atrocity of Monday night. And could the perpetrators get within the clutches of the public, there is little doubt that a swift and speedy justice would be meted out to them. Grisly as it may be, nefarious activities such as this were not uncommon in the era. Even President Lincoln's body was the victim of such an attempted plot in 1876. But this kind of cadaver caper was hardly common in the Beaver State. As the Oregonian blared, The removal of bodies of wealthy men for the purpose of obtaining rewards is not infrequent in the eastern states, but a case of this kind is unparalleled in Portland.
Portland is, and always has been, a small fucking town, it would seem, for the police soon had their foul desecrators of the dead, as the press termed them. The story of the caper soon emerged, and it was oh so willingly splashed, every single fucking gruesome detail, across the pages of the Oregonian. And we here at Kick-Ass Oregon History are only more than happy to share those sordid stories with you, dear-ass kicker. The ringleader of the group, a Dan Magone, met a fellow by the name of Charles Montgomery at the Reinsfaltz Hotel on Front and Madison in February 1897. After dinner one evening, the gentleman walked onto the then-not-yet-burned-down Madison Street Bridge, conversing and chatting. About halfway across the bridge, Magone stopped and, taking Montgomery by the coat, said, These are desperate hard times, Charlie. I don't know how we're going to get along. Getting poorer all the time. I think if I can't get ahead some way or other pretty soon, I'll go out to the cemetery and I'll dig up Lad's bones. I guess they'd give me something handsome to get them back. What do you think about it? I don't know what Charles Montgomery thought, but pretty fucking weird, dude. The macabre matter was dropped, but a few months later, Magone and Montgomery became reacquainted, and they decided to direct a desecration of William Ladd's grave. Two other conspirators were solicited, William Rector and Ed Long. They were promised $50 and told that the body was to be sold to a medical college. A murky evening was selected, and the ghouls descended into the dark Riverview Cemetery. Magone quickly showed the frightened men that he was pretty fucking nuts. I want you to understand that I'm running this thing. You look to me for your pay, and if you was to back out or say a word to anybody, why? And then Magone drew a revolver from his pocket and brandished it, quote, significantly, unquote. With rounded shovels and other tools, they began their ghastly trade. The men began by slashing at the borders of the grave with a hay knife in the hopes of disarming any burglar detection wires that may have been embedded on the site. Magone seemed to act like a person engrossed by insanity. At several points, he grabbed his pistol and thrust it at unidentified noises in the night. As the men shoveled earth in a hurried pace, getting closer to the coffin, Magone even began growling in a frenzied fashion. With the soil strewn about and the tomb exposed, they hacked at the coffin with a knife and pried the cover with their shovels. A rope, a plank, and a hook then helped capture the cadaver, and the ghouls had quite a time dragging the corpulent corpse to the riverbank and their awaiting boat. As they rowed away, dawn began to rise, threatening to expose their grisly activity, but a well-timed thick fog settled over the Willamette.
Lad's corpse was hidden about 30 yards from the river in a spot that was described as wild and foreboding near the falls of Oregon City. Of course, Oregon City. Lad was expertly concealed under about 18 inches of soil, further sheltered with moss and leaves. Fortunately for the grave robbers, jogging had not yet become a popular pastime along the banks of the Willamette, Otherwise, some unsuspecting health nut would surely have stumbled across the corpse. Those who did view Lad's body noted that it was in a remarkable state of preservation. All 300 pounds of him. The criminals were quickly caught, as loose lips tend to sink ships, and they were roughly apprehended and put into heavy chains. Magone, identified as the leader by his now freaked-out compatriots, was taken to the city jail and locked up all alone in one of the breathless cribs where none but the worst criminals and maniacs are confined. The men went to prison, and the Ladd family had a stout layer of concrete poured over William S. Ladd's returned earthly remains. Thus, <clears throat> cementing this tale, into the Keeping Portland Weird column for all time. Like it or not, one of the most important historic sites related to Oregon's history lies within Washington State, Fort Vancouver. We end our Oregon birthday podcast this year with a little commentary on some almost breaking news on some goings-on at that venerable historic site. It was with a sad heart that I read the news last week that the Pearson Air Museum, just next to Fort Vancouver in Vansterdam, had been closed. All of the planes and the models were removed from the hangar, perhaps never to return. Now, the museum at Pearson Field was, how do I put it politely, um, it was no museum of flight like Seattle or Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, not even close. Nonetheless, it was a neat, compact little museum where Portland area aviation geeks could just geek the fuck out to their heart's content just off of I-5. And it's a goddamn shame that it's gone and our area's cultural heritage is a little cheapened by this closure. One event holds Pearson a little higher, in my mind at least, than those aforementioned fancy-ass airplane museums. Not only is Pearson Airfield a historic location in Pacific Northwest history, it also ranks high in Cold War history. You see, on June 20th, 1937, a Soviet plane descended through the murky haze and landed uneventfully at Pearson Field in Vancouver, Washington. The dirty commies piloting the craft, Valerly Chekalov, Grigory Baldukov, and Alexander Belokov had taken off from Moscow 62 hours and 5,200 miles earlier. Oh yeah, and with no fucking food either. This was the first transpolar flight on record, and it was engineered by the Soviet Union. While the plane landed with only 11 gallons of fuel left in its massive tanks, nonetheless, the flight demonstrated to American military authorities that the North Pole 
was no longer a barrier, and those commie bastards could soon be within bomber range of the continental United States. This was a milestone in U.S.-USSR relations, and the significance of this military craft landing at this little shitty airfield at the Couve cannot be understressed. For the sake of interpreting this event alone, we at Kick-Ass Oregon History hope that the fate of this quaint little museum will be decided with the return of all the planes and all the little models for everyone to enjoy once again. On Friday, February 8th, we had a chance to talk with reporter Sue Vorenberg of the Columbian. She helped explain the closing of Pearson Museum and the interplay involved between the museum, the National Park Service, and the Fort Vancouver National Trust. This is Doug Kent Crispin, the resident historian from orhistory.com, and I'm speaking with Sue Vorenberg from the Columbian. Thank you for joining us today, Sue. Sure thing, Doug. Can you tell me why the museum closed? So the Park Service owns the land under the museum and the hangar itself, but the trust, which manages the museum for the city, of Vancouver um, actually owns all the stuff inside or it's been on loan to the trust. The Park Service, um, and there's been an agreement in place between the city and the trust for some time. Um, I think about eight years, I could be wrong on that. but uh, And it's been managed sort of as a community resource and as um, something that's uh, used a lot by the public for various meetings and stuff, as well as a museum and an educational resource and all that. Well, the Park Service, um, which owns the land, decided that they wanted to take over management of the museum. And they've been wrangling with each other for about a year now, trying to work out a, de a deal, but it didn't work out. And the Park Service ultimately wanted uh, Tracy Fortman to have uh, oversight over all decisions made at the museum the trust in the city didn't really like that so um they took all the stuff out of the museum <laughs> and put it in hangars uh over on city land and the reason they did that so fast is that the park service had said that they wanted the keys and codes turned over to them um by wednesday and the trust found out about this on uh, i think it was sunday of this week so, so is there is there any hope of the museum ever opening again? There's hope. Um, right now, it's a lot of the decision making is is up at the sort of federal government level with our senators and congresswomen, uh, sort of trying to trying to deal with it. Uh, also, the museum, while the Park Service hasn't really said what they're going to do with that building if they're going to re try to reopen the museum and get new exhibits or whatnot, the trust is going to at least reopen some of the educational labs over on the secure airfield that the city owns. Um, so they'll be able to get educational groups out there. And I asked the mayor, uh, Vancouver Mayor Tim Levitt, yesterday if it was possible that that museum could reopen somewhere else on city land, and he said that the city council would certainly be open to discussing that and possibly reopening it elsewhere. Well, we certainly hope that uh, something favorable comes out of that and that we get an opportunity to take a look at all of that interpretation again. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us today, Sue. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Take care. I've been really trying, baby. 
Happy birthday, Oregon. And thank you, dear Ass Kicker, for listening. Be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. You can also support the podcast. Go to orhistory.com and click donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And coming up on February 19th at 7.30, please join our resident historian Doug Kank Crispin at the Jack London Bar. We will hear odd stories that celebrate Oregon's past from Mr. Kank Crispin, along with guest historians Finn John and Joe Streckert. We'll also reveal the winner of our Kick-Ass Diorama Contest, selected by our panel of celebrity judges, Dave from DaveKnows.org, Stephanie Strickland from KGW News, Court Weber from Welcome to That Whole Thing, Polly Pospisil from Quizmaster Polly Trivia, Sean Bowman of CriminalCrafts.com, and Sarah Merck, web editor of Bitch Magazine. Oh my, what harsh judgment shall be dispensed on those unsuspecting dioramas? We will enjoy some birthday cake, and round out the evening with a film viewing of a classic Oregon cinematic gem. Shh, I can't tell you the film. It's a secret. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on Tuesday, February 19th at 7.30 p.m. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. He will need your keys and codes by Wednesday. You stay historic, Oregon. And kick ass!